Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, March 16th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, with the goal of getting back to normal, the governor expands vaccine eligibility to all Mississippians. We examine the impact increased access could have in the state. Then, with stimulus payments from the American Rescue Plan on the way, we explore how the infusion of cash could help families in the Magnolia State. Plus, the Institute for the Humanities at MSU analyzes contesting narratives of American history in the political sphere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. All Mississippians age 16 and older now qualify for a coronavirus vaccination, making the Magnolia State the second in the nation to expand access to such a degree. Governor Tate Reeves announced the expansion yesterday on Twitter with the stated goal of getting back to normal. Dr. Jennifer Bryan chairs the board of the Mississippi State Medical Association. She tells our Kobe Vance demand thus far has been strong and expects that to continue through the expanded eligibility. It's a positive thing when we see people stepping up and saying that this is my shot and I want to get my shot. So it'll be really interesting to see. I mean, we have had a little bit of um, ability. You know, I know Dr. Dobbs has been working directly with the governor's office on on some of these things. And, and so I, I think that um, they're going to be ready for it. And then how the public steps up will be interesting to watch. I do hope that um, we have a, a flurry of demand. And, of course, we know that allocations are dependent on how we use our vaccines many times. And so the more we use it, then the healthier our vaccine supply is. What do you think this is going to mean for Mississippians that, you know, want to return to at least a, a more normal life, especially as some people have not been able to visit a loved one in, say, a nursing home for a year now? So we saw the CDC came up with the, the release guidelines about if, but those people have been vaccinated, that it's okay to gather indoors without a mask. And I think that is a a huge sigh of relief for a lot of people um, just to have these glimmers of hope. While we're not returning to the huge mass gatherings and so on, certainly as more and more people are vaccinated, we're beginning to enjoy 
some of the things of um, of old and past um, our normal experiences. So I think as more people become vaccinated, we'll see uh, life slowly return to normal. We heard Dr. Dobbs on Friday say that we're not just throwing open the doors and the windows or kind of peeking through the blinds, but uh, that sunlight sure feels good as we peek through the blinds. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier that um, you hope to see more vaccines go to local clinics and hospitals. I'm curious, right. uh, what what, it, what effects do you think this change is going to have on those uh, locations? Well, one thing I wanted to point out is the Health Department Centers of Excellence Program. That's been really uh, a neat thing, and it's on their website, and there's a lot of health systems that are there, and there'll be more clinics probably coming online soon. Um, but but we, the doctor-patient relationship is really sacred, and a lot of times patients have a trust level with their own physician and so there are many people that are just can't wait to get through a drive-through site and get a vaccine from whoever can give it to them. But then, as physicians, we have long-term relationships with our patients, and um, and these conversations that we have are are profound at times in kind of gaining the trust of the public. And 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 the health department has worked with a lot of private clinics. I think there's over a couple hundred they mentioned that are clinics now statewide that are administering vaccines. So they kind of went big from the beginning was my perception. So they drive through sites, hospital systems, as supply came in, and they built out a vaccine infrastructure. But that will be able to be nuanced more and more as um, as we move forward and, and getting smaller um, batch shipments and so on to um, smaller clinics. So i hope hopeful in the coming months we see more of that in the medical home. How should Mississippians begin to see how uh, see the progress that could come forward from this when it comes to returning to that more normal life. It, what's what's a realistic timeline people should be setting from themselves? You know, everybody wants to, to tell the future, and it's difficult, um, but I, I do expect that with precautions, the summer will feel more like normal. But that's, you know, everything is just dependent so much on our own activities. I mean, I don't know how many times we talk early on about the silver bullet that we all thought was our own behavior. So to the extent that we we do the, the, the smaller things of masking up when we're sick and, and getting the vaccines and staying outside more than inside as we go around other people who are not in our household, then the summer will feel more like normal. But that does not mean you will never see masks or you will not see hand sanitizing stations or that we wouldn't encourage you to be outside as opposed to inside. All of those infection control measures are going to be in the background to help reduce the spread for those who don't have immunity for various reasons. Remember, kids catch and spread coronavirus, and and we don't know yet when we're going to get that vaccine for under 16, so they can still spread virus, and no vaccine is 100%. But we're not talking about no risk. We're talking about reasonable and acceptable risk, and that's that's different for different people about what level of risk they're willing to accept. But the summer will look better. Um, and then in the fall, you know, we're, we're hoping to move forward. And then I think we'll all be watching what's happening around the globe and with variants and vaccination process because we're all, we're all connected. Dr. Jennifer Bryan chairs the board of the Mississippi State Medical Association. Dr. Bryan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks again for having me. To meet some of the newly eligible demographic where they are, vaccination clinics are also being created and expanded to some of the state's colleges and universities. Sid Salter with Mississippi State University says this could allow more students and faculty to return to classrooms. This will be, uh, you know, in my estimation, a real game changer, not just for Mississippi State, but for higher education in Mississippi and across the country, because the more people that can become vaccinated and achieve a measure of of safety 
through that, the uh, slower the spread will be and the the more uh, real it looks to return to uh, a semblance of normalcy. We, we feel good about the fact that we're going to be able to go to uh, in-person commencement, although there will be some attendance limits. Uh, we've been able uh, so far to return to limited attendance um, NCAA baseball, uh, softball on campus, and uh, all of that is uh, is a plus. But you know, job one and the most important thing that we do uh, here is try to get back to in-person classes and laboratories and to give our students more of the college experience that they want and that we want them to have. And so getting these vaccinations are a first step toward uh, giving these students back the experience that they wanted when they made the decision to come here. And so we're, we're excited about that. And now you mentioned that this could be a game changer. I'm curious, um, are there any any ways that you anticipate this could help uh, change university life back to a more normal state in the fall? Oh, no question. If uh, if we are able to get the supplies of vaccine and uh, we get the uh, compliance that we anticipate from faculty, staff, students, uh, everyone in the university uh, family, we certainly uh, will be in a position in the fall to look at uh, a, a normal schedule and uh, normal operating guidelines. Uh, we're planning to do that uh, at this point, and uh, of course, the vaccinations just uh, cement that uh, plan to uh, be able to return to normal. We're we're obviously going to monitor the COVID situation uh, moving forward and on, a, on a weekly, daily basis. But at this point, we think it's the uh, smartest, safest thing we can do to, to help all the people that comprise the university family get vaccinated and get vaccinated uh, here if possible. So, yeah, we're excited about it. Sid Salter is Chief Communications Officer at Mississippi State University. Uh, Sid, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Between 60 and 70,000 vaccines are administered in Mississippi each week. A map with all of Mississippi's vaccine providers can be found on the Department of Health's website. Coming up with stimulus payments from the American Rescue Plan on the way, we explore how the infusion of cash could help families in the Magnolia State. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
Nearly 1.4 million Mississippi households are expected to receive stimulus payments as part of the American Rescue Plan. Singles who earn up to $75,000 will get $1,400. Couples making under $150,000 per year will receive $2,800. And parents who meet the income guidelines will receive $1,400 for each child. The money, says Olita Fitzgerald of the Children's Defense Fund, will provide families much-needed relief. She shares more with our Desiree Frazier. So many uh, Mississippi families have been struggling through this pandemic. And uh, with people working part-time, people in and out of work. So this, this will be a great benefit for almost all Mississippians. Should not only um, help uh, the families themselves, but be uh, a major shot in the arm for Mississippi's economy. Uh, and and for workers who have just uh, been left out, uh, who are in service industries and 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 providing services like that, so this is a major major deal for Mississippi. Have you been there? The median the median income for Mississippians is around sixty thousand uh, dollars. So this is going to cover. Uh, more than half of of the uh, adults and families in Mississippi. Well, some might say, you know, $1,400 is not a windfall. Really, how much can that do if your rent is, say, seven $800 a month? You're absolutely correct. Uh, we're, we're hopeful that, uh, well, there will be a, a continued mor- moratorium on rent payments, but we know that that is a bill that is going to come due at some point in time. Uh, so there is that. Uh, but $1,400 uh, and, and the additional payments per dependent child is a good infusion of money into a household. But it does not and uh, get at the, the root of the problem that we have. Now, hopefully, by this happening at this time, we are digging out from under COVID-19 so that people's lives might be able, they might be able to hang on a little while longer until they can get back to some normalcy. Overall, do you think that Mississippians are going to come out better after this is all said and done? Well, uh, Desiree, it's according to what happens down at the legislature. Uh, you get you can get this federal infusion that is only going to last us a couple of years. In addition to to these resources, there Mississippi is going to receive a substantial amount of money to help families with childcare costs. Uh, but families are going to have to know how to apply for those. And that that infusion is about five hundred million dollars just for the state of Mississippi. It's got to be obligated, spent out in two years. I mean, obligated in two years, spent in three. So again, that will be that will provide substantial support for struggling families who need help paying their their childcare or who have not in the past been eligible to receive childcare subsidies. Uh, so that's a special COVID uh, package. Now, and schools will receive an, an additional infusion of dollars uh, on the things they need, including in the school money, though, something that we really need to pay attention 
too in this state is that there are uh, there's about a hundred billion dollars set aside nationally for school facilities, and so many of our schools uh, are struggling with facility costs because of the way the Mississippi has underfunded uh, K-12 education in the past, and because a lot of school facility dollars come from the local tax base. There's a lot in this package. It will help us uh, over the next couple of years, but it is not, uh, you know, we have to get back to the economy we had, though it wasn't good. uh, We have to get back there, but we still have, we will still have the same problems with poverty that we have in Mississippi after this is over. So there's a lot of effort uh, on the part of um, of advocate the advocates community and fa- and, and uh, advocates for families to try to make that child tax credit uh, increase permanent. Uh, that will help us tremendously. But all of this money is it will be in and out of the state in a matter of two to three years. Now. If the Mississippi legislature proceeds in eliminating the state tax, the state income tax, uh, with the kind of nebulous programming and, and, and sourcing of funding through, uh, through sales tax increases that they're talking about, that will come home to roost after this, this COVID uh, uh, stimulus money is gone. So while we are receiving this money, it will make things better for a little while. But um, the bigger the bigger picture around whether or not Mississippians are going to be better off is what happens in this legislature. Olita Fitzgerald with the Children's Defense Fund. We appreciate you um, speaking with us about this stimulus package. Thank you. Thank you, Desiree. Coming up, the Institute for the Humanities at MSU analyzes contesting narratives of American history in the political sphere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The subject of American history, what it means, how it's framed, is at the center of a reignited clash. Since the debut of the 1619 Project, politicians, citizens, educators, and historians have newly engaged in a time-worn debate over the meaning and mission of America's historical narrative. Today, in a virtual event hosted by the Mississippi State University Institute for the Humanities, two professors 
and a high school history teacher will explore these tensions and discuss how the subject is taught and why it matters. Julia Osman is the director of the Institute. She tells our Michael Guidry she can't help but notice how contested American history is in today's political climate. For a long time, there's been a lot of tension over um, what history is, what American history means, um, and how American history should be taught, especially at the K-12 level. And then just recently, um, there were these two prime examples of this tension. Um, the 1619 Project, um, which tries to reorient American history um, around the experiences of enslaved peoples. And then, of course, the 1776 Report, trying to argue that American history is primarily a patriotic endeavor. Um, and so this kind of battle over American history has always interested me. But here, right now, it really seems to be coming to a head. The focus of this event is the, the meaning and mission of American history. So what is that? What does that mean? Um, what do you plan on exploring? Well, I plan on exploring, um, you know, the, the, the issues about why, why are we teaching American history in the first place? Um, and what American history is supposedly supposed to do. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the tension is that we're seeing right now, um, because obviously, you know, according to the 1776 report, um, the uh, uh, American history is supposed to make us very patriotic, like the, the meaning of American history is a very patriotic one, and its mission is to make all citizens are really glad to be an American and to support America. And most historians would absolutely outright uh, 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 disagree with that and say, no, that's not what history is. Um, myths are important maybe for generating patriotism or symbols or rituals or, or memories, um, but that's not what history does. Um, you know, you know, history, you just want to um, understand what happened in the past and you have to take, you know, all perspectives into account. You know, history is primarily about storytelling. Um, you know, how are you going to construct a narrative, a story that will explain how something happened? You know, what happened first, what happened second, what caused something? So rather than decide what the stories that you want to tell first and then try to find facts that fit it, you really need to look at the evidence in the past and then use that as your guide to try to figure out what happened. You brought up the fact that, you know, the study of history is is finding narratives or, or, or perspectives from which to evaluate an event or a series of events. The 1619 Project, when it came out and received the attention it did, uh, was because it provided a perspective and a narrative of American history from a point of view that had often been, now I wouldn't say ignored, but definitely not part of main, the mainstream. So uh, when you see something like the 1619 Project come out and see how it's received uh, and that it is a black American's narrative of the founding of mm -hmm. the nation. What does that do to the long-held default narrative that is often shaped by the white experience in America? Well, it, it challenges it. Um, I mean, the really interesting thing about the 1619 Project is it kind of makes us ask, you know, why haven't we centered American history around the experience of enslaved peoples yet? Why haven't we considered this yet? Why don't we start American history at this starting point? And the thing is, is that the study of history is very much about debate. It's very much a long, ongoing conversation. Um, and so I, I, think, I think the 1619 Project was valuable in, you know, making uh, uh, historians and, you know, members, um, uh, non-historians alike, consider, you know, how are we telling a story and why are we telling it a certain way? 
Now, the 1619 project, when it was first conceived and it was first published, wasn't perfect. Um, and historians have continued to like talk about um, how the 1619 project itself presents history. But that's part of what history is. It is supposed to be an ongoing conversation. And the reason why we keep publishing so many books on the Civil War or so many books on the American Revolution is that historians are always questioning what we think we know and re-examining what we know. That is just part of the process of trying to understand the past. And so it's been a really interesting challenge to try to think about, oh, what would happen if we told it differently? Um, What if we did um, put African-American experiences at the center of the story instead of kind of marginalizing those experiences or casting them as victims um, or or things like that? And I, I think that's a good question for, for us to ask, and it's a good question to talk about and debate in the classroom. What needs to change about the way we view history, the way we present history, and the way uh, we, I guess, guide the discipline of history in our schools? What I saw when, when I was teaching history in the public school system was that it became very much um, service to the test. So, you know, rather than have a chance to really stop and explore and debate and develop skill sets um, in the history classroom around reading and writing and interpreting, um, history became very much about memorizing facts and being able to um, demonstrate that, that factual knowledge. And depending on what state you live in, you know, that test could exclude a lot of history that would be helpful to know, or that test could, um, again, try to teach students a very specific narrative of history that um, privileges some stories over others or leaves certain facts out. Um, and then so once students are done with a history classroom, um, you know, they might think that they really have a good understanding of history, um, but they, they don't. Um, just because, you know, teachers are not given the freedom to to explore things that their students are interested in or given the freedom to really, you know, let the students um, ask questions and explore different angles. The event is from 1619 to 1776, How Do We Frame American History? It is a virtual event sponsored and presented by the Mississippi State University Institute for the Humanities. It's virtual. How do people access this, Julia? Um, people can go onto the Institute for Humanities Facebook page. Um, if you go to into Facebook and you type in, you know, Mississippi State Institute for the Humanities, it should take you right to our page. And then there will be a video on that page starting at 3.30. Julie Osmond is the director of the Institute for the Humanities at Mississippi State University, also an assistant professor of history. Julia, thank you so much, uh, and good luck with your event. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.